Happy New Year. It's been so cold over the entire country this week. Here on Vashon Island, where I live, wind chill got well below zero, and some of the southern states had wind chill of like negative 40 and negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That's ridiculous. When it gets this cold, my old house is miserable. The poor insulation here just lets the cold right through, and I have to bundle up and keep moving until the weather changes. Several parts of the country are without power, too. Cold and no electricity makes life dangerous and unbearable. The parts of my island that have no power have put their freezer foods outside in the icy cold to stay fresh. Some folks are grilling their defrosting expensive meat and seafood so they can enjoy eating them before losing them in case the weather warms before the electricity comes back. Some folks are even leaving town to stay with relatives. And believe it or not, this is the theme of today's Shaping Fire episode. Just like humans get miserable in crappy weather, so does the microbe life in your cannabis soil. Too much water, too little water. Not enough sunshine, too much sunshine. Too little carbon, too much carbon. Too hot, too cold, frozen. Yikes. I imagine the microbes also putting all their little foods out in the front yard and having the neighborhood over for a big freezing barbecue. Yeah, that's right. Get ready for a lot of anthropomorphizing of microbes today, because microbes are people too. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. Welcome to episode 112. My guest today is Michael DeLeggi. Michael DeLeggi earned his master's from Colorado State University's horticultural department in 2020, where he researched different facets of plant microbe interactions, including nematode biocontrol methods, microbial legacies resulting from replanting fields, and even the caterpillar gut microbiome. Now serving as the Director of Microbiology at Impello Biosciences, his research surrounds the overlap between biological and biochemical agricultural inputs targeted towards both crop and soil health properties. Cannabis sativa is one of their model organisms for agriculture research, and one of Michael's projects is to examine the functional bacterial species recruited by cannabis sativa in the rhizosphere. During the first set today, we will discuss biostimulants and plant growth regulators and how to approach them as regenerative cannabis cultivators. In the second set, we will discuss the care and tending of microlife in the rhizosphere. And during the third set, we will choose companion plants for soil diversity and finish the episode with an indictment of the 24-hour light strategy. Welcome to Shaping Fire, Michael. Hi, Shango. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful to be here. Awesome. Really glad that you made time for us. So let's get right into it. You know, um, cannabis farmers are always looking for like a leg up, uh, something winning to add to their recipe. And um, a lot of us look for different things that could be determined to be biostimulants. And then a subsection of those people are, are people mostly who follow this show who are uh, regeneratively minded farmers. So, so they're, they're, they're looking for natural biostimulants versus synthetic ones. Let's start out the show by talking about what biostimulants are generally, and then we'll start to tease apart the synthetic ones from natural ones. So, so that's my first question for you. Um, what are biostimulants, and, um, and what are the kind of, kinds of attributes that we look for them to impart on our cannabis plants? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I like to think of biostimulants as a really large umbrella term with several different kind of facets of, of products or inputs that people can use or they can take advantage of that might be in a natural system. Um, but I guess in essence, you know, they're they're very much performance enhancers for plant growth and metabolism is how I kind of define biostimulants. So, so, when, so when we say performance, um, um, are we talking about specifically like the, the, um, the gathering of nutrition, the processing of nutrition, uh, improved photosynthesis, essentially all of the plants, um, biological systems get, get kind of like tweaked up. The, the governor is turned up on all of them. So they're running either more efficiently or faster. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And, you know, different parts of biostimulants will uh, uh, upregulate different parts of the plant metabolism or, or growth uh, rates and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the uh, primarily I look at these as, you know, biological products, things like microorganisms and, and biochemicals, um, things that are usually plant derived or discovered in nature and then used uh, um, to upregulate the plant metabolism, whether that's with hormones or um amino acids, fulvic acids, things like that. I like this term upregulate. Um, uh, I've heard it before, but I don't use it regularly. And um, I like it both for the biology conversation, but it also sounds like a great um, euphemism for getting high. Like, like, oh man, I need to go upregulate. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, uh, I like that a lot. So, so let, let's let's tease apart now the synthetic and the and the natural biostimulants because we're we're mostly going to be talking about um, natural biostimulants today. Um, so w when I discuss bio natural biostimulants with other regenerative growers, we're usually talking about, um, you know, this or that plant that we are going to, you know, do a, a, a tea of or an extract of or a, or a, or a, you know, a top dress of something like that, because we want uh, some um, naturally occurring biochemical that's in the plant, we want that to seep into our biosphere. And then when at the conventions, when I talk with the synthetic biostimulant sales guys, their products have always got these like multi-syllabic names that, that um, sound very mm, scientific. And sometimes they've, you know, they've also been named at some marketing name. And so they have got a, a, a real different vibe to them. Um, perhaps they're, Perhaps the natural ones and the synthetic ones are both trying to do the same things, but I'm, I'm guessing they have got different attributes that, that you can share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would think like uh, a lot of times when I, when I think about synthetic biostimulants, whether that's something that is, you know, uh, discovered through a natural process and then, you know, one compound is isolated, it really seems a lot to me like the pharmaceutical industry. We find one active ingredient, we purify it, you know, it shows in a lab and on the bench that this is effective at whatever we're trying to uh, alleviate. Um, and then all of the, uh, you know, medicine is built off of that compound. Um, and that's kind of how I look at like the synthetic aspect of that, where potentially there's a, there's a chance of missing some other minor chemicals or, you know, metabolites that might be from a natural product extract um, that would be missed. Uh, when things are just synthesized in a lab versus uh, extracted through a natural process, like making a compost tea or, or breaking down other um, forms of, of organic inputs like uh, fish waste or even, you know, corn waste, things like that. 
hearing you describe it, it actually reminds me a lot of how we talk about the entourage effect and the difference between isolates and whole plant. It sounds a lot like the synthetic, um, the synthetic biostimulants are often like isolates. They are an isolated biochemical that we're going to apply the plant one way or another versus the compost tea kind of flavor. That's more like taking a whole plant medicine because we're getting all these, these random uh, plant constituents that um that we may not have even researched yet but we know that as a symphony they they interact really well with the human body um what do you think about that yeah i would agree with that i think it's really similar to how people talk about the entourage effect of of cannabis and you know terpenoids and things like that um the same thing goes for you know whether these these compounds whether a synthetic or natural biostimulant is is directly influencing the plant there's a there's a good chance it is it's also really helping out like the soil microbiome most likely uh things like you know the upregulation of the metabolism can be a factor of uh an increased rate of you know soil respiration or soil organic matter or just general beneficial soil ecological components um you know things like amino acids uh the Things are one of the um, smaller terms underneath the larger biostimulant umbrella can become building blocks for protein synthesis in both plants and microbes. Um, so by providing that source that might be, you know, deficient in the soil or, um, you know, outcompeted by other microbes, if a, a grower can add that in there, um, whether that's helping the plant directly or the soil ecology, the whole system is benefited, at least um, from what we've seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um you know, I I, rec- I do recognize that I've got a certain amount of prejudice against synthetic biostimulants simply because they are synthetic, and I know that um, that is often unfair of me just to uh, discount things because they're synthetic. Um, you know, outside of the fact that just on its face, I prefer organic gardening and organic food and organic seeds because i like to um you know have my garden be as close to nature as possible um is there really any you know a priori reason to discount or not include synthetic biostimulants um and and what what i'm going to compare it to is you know we often talk about you know bought bottled salt fertilizers on this show about how they kind of force feed nutrition to cannabis plants and by doing that um you know you might get a robust plant but you're also getting a plant that is out of balance and over the long term is more susceptible to plants and can have all sorts of other problems because you're you're forcing it right now um is there is are there any mechanisms like that with synthetic biostimulants that are a reason to reject them because of how they function instead of just me being prejudiced because they are not organic no i I understand where you're coming from with the um the synthetic prejudice and i I kind of adapt similar principles like in my own gardening and and things like that um i guess i want to ask you a question about uh what might be considered I guess, synthetic to take a step back here. Um, I'm familiar with a process uh, for an amino acid product that is um, taking waste from the fishing industry. So lots of shrimp shells and and crab shells and things like that. And then they're put into a reactor. Uh, A couple enzymes are added to break down the the fish waste or the, you know, the crustacean waste. Um, And then the end product is both, uh, you know, amino acids and, and chitin and other things like that. Um, so that is, you know, synthetically, the, the breakdown process is synthetically increased with these enzymes in the reaction. Um, but if you were to kind of slowly compost, you know, shrimp and crab shells and, and things like that in your soil, 
you might have a similar uh, endpoint product or you know beneficial effect of the soil system. Um, so I guess, how do you feel about that kind of process? Is that what you call that more synthetic, kind of towing the line between the two of them, or just is that purely synthetic because you know lab equipment and bioreactors are involved? Yeah, it's an interesting question to kind of tease the definition. Um, uh, definitely, at, at, from the top, I'll say the word synthetic is a messy term because it, it's it's kind of like a it's 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 a bucket of ideas that are different to pretty much everybody who hears the word, and it is best applied on a on a case by case basis based on what you are you know based on this little example though um, it sounds like that is a um, a a non tricky right it, it, yeah it is tricky it sounds like it's a natural process right it's it sounds like you're you're just processing by adding other natural processes so it's you've got you've got natural natural naturally occurring product a and you're adding naturally occurring products b and c and you know you put them together and it causes the breakdown to happen into a you know a usable nutrition faster um you know if we were to if we were to go long on this and make it the, the you know the the brunt of the show i would probably have to ask a bunch of questions about what are the natures of the inputs and and where that line might be drawn between um you know adding adding inputs that that um either inhibit natural reactions or create non-natural reactions to get whatever you're trying to, you know, produce, produce. But, but, um, that's a slippery slope right there, of course. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, you know, the processes would, would, uh, you know, um, theoretically occur in nature, just a little bit longer time for those enzymes to unlock some of the, the polymers, like things in, you know, the exoskeletons of crustaceans. Um, but yeah, we are synthetically or, you know, in this type of process development, uh, somebody would be synthetically upregulating or <laughs> increasing the rate of decomp to make these things, um, you know, in a more plant usable form. That way the plants and the soil microbes have to expend less energy um, on breaking down things and they can just be, you know, slurped up and used uh, efficiently. Um, so, yeah, I think it kind of tells the line between synthetic and natural. But one thing that is is kind of cool in processes such as these. Um, I know there's similar ones for corn and soy-based uh, biostimulants. Um, they do put uh, a use and end-use product to things that might be considered waste material prior to um, these types of reactions. And I guess we just want to make sure that that waste material is handled in a responsible way if, if we're going to produce it at all. Absolutely. And, you know, when it is not waste material, when it's, you know, host material for a, a crustacean farmer or a, a corn or soy farmer, we want to make sure that uh, those plants are, or animals are being treated and, uh, you know, uh, the management practices of cultivating those are also not going to influence the inputs that we want to feed our plants later. Mm -hmm. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, some of the, the natural biostimulants that come up, uh, the most often in uh, cannabis cultivation. I'm thinking uh, humic and fulvic acids, seaweed extracts, uh, different types of microbial inoculants, and then amino acids, which you've already mentioned. Um, are these all, are, are these different types of natural biostimulants working on um, different um, uh, biological systems of the cannabis plant, or are they all essentially acting on the same system, but in different ways? Yeah, they would definitely um, act on, you know, the same system as a whole, the plant, the soil, the microbes and whatnot. But every every part, everything you just mentioned has a slightly different uh, effect on the biome. 
from what I understand, um, you know, humics and fulvics can be great sources of organic matter for both the plant and the soil microbes to use as inputs. Uh, whereas things like seaweed extracts often contain plant hormones like cytokinin content and, um, um, I think some phosphorus or potassium as well. Um, so we get a little bit of plant nutrition from there as well as some, you know, plant hormones, uh, applied outside of the plant body rather than being produced within it. Um, microbial inoculants. I think these guys, uh, really depends on your soil and the history of that, that system or your indoor cultivation system. Um, but those will primarily, you know, uh, if they're administered in a drench, be, uh, benefiting the root systems of the plants, as well as the neighboring microbes that might already be there. And then we have, you know, foliar spray microbial inoculants too, that help, um, outcompete things that might be negative to plant performances like molds and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it, it really is a whole system of, of, uh, effects, you know, different, different building blocks, uh, from the biostimulant world will help different areas of the plant, as you mentioned. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun, big umbrella term because there's so much going on underneath the, the umbrella that is biostimulants. Mm -hmm. It's also sounds like it's a very fine line between biostimulants and nutrition. Um, because some of the, you know, some of the positive attributes that you mentioned from seaweed extracts are different, um, you know, nutritive, um, substances. Is the, is there a line, is there a scientific line between nutrition and biostimulants or, or do they kind of like see into each other a lot of times? I think the line is maybe dotted as opposed to, uh, you know, less of a gradient, less of a firm line, um, where, where a lot of biostimulant compounds can have some form of NPK or even micronutrients in there. Um, but then when we look at plant nutrition, those are products with NPK is almost the biggest number on the label besides the product name for the most part. Um, so that's kind of how I see the separation between, you know, nutritional inputs versus biostimulant based inputs, but it is kind of a gray area or a gradient where you have some trickling effects of, of the, um, you know, amino acid type biostimulants having some, some form of NP or K in them as well. Yeah. At, at, using that definition, it, it, biostimulants becomes really, really close to, um, like, like trace nutrients and trace minerals. It's like, oh, if, if you're not talking about NPK and you're just talking about everything else, you're, you're talking about, you know, biostimulants, um, including things that we don't get in in you know kind of targeted generic fertilizers that we add because we want to round out the the rhizosphere with with um, essential micros yeah absolutely and um it, one other thing to mention too is is you know whether or not uh, well, another another reason, I guess, that the, the line between nutrition and biostimulation is maybe a little bit more blurry at this point in science uh, is because things like um, certain bacteria have enzymes to unlock uh, unavailable forms of phosphorus, such as calcium phosphate, so unavailable for plant uptake. Um, so, you know, there's no nutrition in, in that type of bacterial product, but it can help unlock nutrition that might already be in your soil. Um, things like mycorrhizal products, too, I think, from what I've seen, um, also sometimes have a, a phosphorus content as well. So, um, you know, somebody might apply a mycorrhizal product for the first time and see a really great, uh, you know, flowering boost in their cannabis plants. And it's hard to attribute that to the mycorrhizae being present or the, the increased amount of phosphorus being also available for the plant or, or probably both. Yeah, I wish that when we tried a whole bunch of new things at the same time and we get good results, we could just straight up ask the plant, which one caused it, my friend? 
I, that would be amazing. And yeah, I want to, I want to talk to the soil microbiome as well. I'm looking forward to those developments, maybe with AI. There we go. So, uh, before we move on from biostimulants, um, let's, uh, let's bring this conversation and make it like real, um, real rubber hits the road. So for, for the cultivators who are listening, um, who are like, okay, I understand the difference between the synthetic and the biostimulants as much as we can get to definitionally. I like the idea of offering natural biostimulants to my plants. Um, what are some that you recommend from the natural world that regenerative farmers can um, use at home that will have you know reliably good effects? You know, some, of the, some of the stuff is so obscure and its impact is so small that you can have a debate about whether some of these did anything at all in particular but but what are a couple like tried and true naturally occurring biostimulants that um that our listeners can um you know explore for for pretty assured benefit yeah i mean i think a lot of it really depends on where your plants are going to be going if it's going into a hydroponic or controlled environmental system um versus a soil system um you know, plays a role, but I am biased to the, the soil microbes and the root adhering microbes or the plant growth promoting yeah. microbes. So, so are we here at shaping fire? So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, from what, from what I've seen in both research and at home cultivation, uh, the sooner microbes get introduced to a plant root, um, I like to think about it as a really good protective and enhancing form. Uh, one of my favorite analogies here is think of that, that radical, that, that firstly emerged plant root from your seed or your clone, um, being like an empty seat at a table with, you know, let's say a hundred seats. Um, the, the plant is going to be exuding root exudates all over that table and, um, through the roots. And those are basically like adding different types of food sources to the, the table here. Um, the sooner that those seats at the table can be colonized with plant benefiting or soil ecology benefiting, or even just free living, uh, microorganisms, um, maybe not colonized, but present and taking up space and competing for resources, the more likely um, the cultivator uh, would be, you know, not seeing things like plant disease. Um, the If the seeds can be full, filled with things like plant benefiting microorganisms, um, whether they're from a compost system, living soil, uh, indigenous microorganism cultivating, uh, or even a biological inoculant you can buy off on a shelf, I think that is probably the best way to really prime young or new plants for, uh, you know, a successful harvest cycle. Um, filling those seats up with the table, uh, allowing those resources to be used by things that are maybe symbiotic or mutualist with the plants to, you know, the benefit is, is a feedback loop. Um, whereas a pathogen might only, you know, consume a root exudate until it can get in high enough numbers to penetrate the plant cell and then become pathogenic. Uh, the less seats at that table that are for things like fusarium or phytophthora or pythium, um, the less likely, uh, you know, that plant is going to have a negative effect. I really like that seats at a table uh, um, example that I can really envision that. And so, so your first answer is to, you know, add a bunch of, uh, you know, of, of indigenous microbes um, so that the seats of the table can get filled with, um, with uh, probiotic folks before anything pathogenic shows up. And, um, you know, uh, and there's, a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a range of ways that we talk about on this show to add microbes and 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 you're like just you know add them add them right away as soon as as soon as the plant starts um for the second one is there something that might be more nutrition based instead of like having good neighbors based like microbes that you would also recommend as a um, naturally occurring biostimulant 
Yeah, so I think my, my bias is really going to show with this answer. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I talked about the probiotics, right? I also think the prebiotics are just as important, especially in, in soilless systems or, or you know, uh, near sterile systems, right? Hydroponics and things like that. Um, plants evolve roots with their relationships with microbes. Uh, Dr. White and all of his research surrounding rhizophagy has really been uh, a beneficial disruption in, in agricultural research. Yeah. And I think that uh, a lot of growers have tried really hard to maintain a sterile system, which you know, your plants don't want sterile systems. They're often, you know, exuding uh, cakes and cookies, sugars and carbon into the, the surrounding soils to try to get microbes to colonize there. So uh, a long way to answer your question, I think like prebiotics, things like organic materials, humic fulvic acids, um, we know what those can do to benefit the plant and, and how they are benefiting the soil microbiome and how that's benefiting the plant is still being kind of flushed out. Um, but I do think that... Uh, your plants are going to benefit from these compounds that you're applying, whether or not they're for the plant or the bacteria. And uh, usually the application rates from things, whether you're whipping up a compost tea or doing like a, a plant extract or purchasing something, um, there's enough to go around for both the plants and the microbes. Fantastic. I love that when, when we keep on coming back to, you know, grab plants that are already in your yard and let them um, decay in water, you know, spin that for 36 hours and then pour that back on your plants. I love that cycle bringing back, um, you know, what's already in your yard, the plants, the grass clippings, the forest duff, whatever it is, incubate it for a little bit to make those microbes super abundant and then just pour it back on your plants. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean that, and it's, it's always, you know, a fun term is like kind of bioprospecting being out, Ooh, um, like in, that. in soil, uh, in the woods, in the forest or anywhere that, you know, it's okay to kind of, I'm going to use the word sample from, um, I know you guys have talked about indigenous microorganisms here. Um, but yeah, like the, the ability to kind of collect some microbial diversity, um, from maybe a forest or, uh, somebody with a, better historical soil health practice than maybe the plot you inherited um, is also a great way to, you know, add that microbial diversity. Um, if you, you know, we have these like notions of, of plant micro symbioses uh, in science where, you know, we want to look at a really happy cannabis plant and then collect some soil microbes from its roots and then take that home and apply it to our cannabis plants. So they do well too. Um, but there's a lot of functional redundancy in the, the rhizosphere microbiome world, whether that's a palm tree or a cannabis plant or some grass. Um, so you might even be able to get some type of beneficial microbial function from sampling something like grass, uh, and applying it to your, to your home grow or, you know, making a compost tea out of it or a soil slurry. Right on. So, uh, so dear listener, if you're very interested in in moving uh, these microbes around, uh, sit tight because we're going to be coming back to this topic again with set two or in set two. So, Michael, um, I want to move us on past biostimulants now uh, to what I consider one of their cousins that I know less about, which is uh, plant growth regulators. And, you know, I, I first got turned on to uh, plant growth regulators kind of as a as a slur as a diss when I would come across like really rock hard um, indoor rock wool buds and that that you know I, I would squeeze them and as a you know as a as a lifelong outdoor grower when you squeeze my flowers there's there's some give to them whereas these were like like literally rocks and I was all like what what kind of cannabis is this right and people are like you know because i tend to hang out with you know organic -y 
farmers, they'd say something like, ah, it's those PGRs that they use, you know? And I'm like, I don't know what those are, but but I, I certainly don't want any part of that. And and over time, I realize it's true that synthetic PGRs and, and what they have a tendency to do to the plant are not something that I'm normally going for. But then I started to realize um, while, while studying the soil food web that there are actually naturally occurring um, biochemicals in plants that um, you know that we can wildcraft that also are pro um, plant growth regulators so that maybe you can get you know harder flowers that have got a a market attraction and an aesthetic attraction in ways that don't also um, you know injure the plant and make it you know, need to be grown in a sterile environment instead of the yard. So, so, so I'm going to ask you, number one, would you, would you, would you explain for us what plant growth regulators are and um, where we may find them in uh, the natural world? Yeah. Um, so the way I kind of uh, understand plant growth regulators would be just kind of um, hormones, uh, the, the plant hormones, things like auxins, gibberellins, cytokinins, and, uh, you know, natural sources of those things like seaweed is a really uh, common input used for cytokinin uh, PGRs. Um, I think um, like we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you know, when you do the wildcrafting and you do the natural pro uh, process and, and take your plant inputs or get materials and do the extraction yourself, you are likely getting things that might be missed uh, as opposed to when an auxin is purified in a lab and dried out into a powder and then, you know, mailed to you in a tube to dip your plant roots in before <laughs> rooting them. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the way I kind of see them would just be plant hormones, uh, whether they're natural or synthetic, I think they can be helpful for growers and, you know, helpful for making uh, deadlines and yield improvements and quality improvements and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I still kind of am in the school of thought of, you know, these, these natural processes like breaking down, uh, organic inputs, um, would, we're, we're probably missing something when we're applying just the pure compound, but, uh, further, you know, science needs to prove that. <laughs> so, so if we're talking about, get, you know, getting these oxins and cytokines and uh, gibberellins and, and, and putting them on and that we're getting them from plants, it sounds awful lot like we're talking about biostimulants again. And, 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 and perhaps there is an argument to be made that plant growth regulators and natural biostimulants are all in the bucket of plants that have got chemicals, hormones, and nutrition that are also used by the cannabis plant that we just want to wildcraft, or what's that term you used, bioprospect, um, you know, on our properties, and, and then just allow them to either degrade in their basic form or incubate them with, you know, oxygen, and then apply them to our plants. It, it sounds like it's the same system, just using different vocabulary. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I do think like, you know, the PGR term fits fits nicely underneath the umbrella term that is biostimulants in my world um, and maybe the world. Uh, but yeah, you know, you think about um, how these compounds um, <clears throat> mainly, you know, the, the plant is naturally producing these things when it needs roots. There's auxins being produced inside the plant um, to, to signal those meristem cells to turn into roots. Um, but having you know, furthered science uh, in agriculture, we as growers can can use these things to get effects that we want to. I know um, in a lot of the ornamental crop industry, things like uh, anti-gibberellins are sprayed on, you know, flowers to keep them like tight and, uh, you know, not too 
leggy or stretched out from the pot. That way they make a nice compact, bushy, you know, poinsettia or zinnia or something like that. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting to think about the use of PGRs in products that are going to be consumed by people rather than just enjoyed by, uh, like aesthetically, like flowers and, and things like that. Um, and I think, um, I need to do more reading on, on you know, the, 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 uh, the consumption of things that might be residual on flower if the plant wasn't able to use all them and, and, or even just surfactants to get them to spread as well. So when I have talked with other regenerative farmers about the naturally occurring PGRs that they use, I only have ever gotten one response. Either, either the farmers don't think of them in that way, and so they're just using degraded plant, you know, compost teas or, or spun aerated teas. So they'll, they'll either say nothing. They don't, they don't use one intentionally, or they will say banana peels. And so, mm. so, um, are there, is there any, Oh, this is kind of a nice pun. Is there any low hanging fruit that you recommend where, where we can go for, um, the, the hormones that have the effect on the cannabis plant that we're looking for? So we don't have to go to synthetics. For example, if we want tighter flowers and a more compact overall plant, uh, do we want to go to a banana peel or are there things that we may have access to that you think might be, um, you know, better for us to go after? Yeah, I think ultimately I don't have any sort of materials off the top of my head on on things like anti-gibberellins. I know seaweed is a good one for cytokinin. Um, I think people have used uh, you know honeys for for auxins. Whether that's I'm not sure if that's actually a root increaser or if it's just a good antimicrobial for uh, you know pathogens that might infect the plant before it can root. Um, but yeah, I mean I I'm a huge composter. Um, and I'm a big fan of vermicompost as well. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, doing that stuff in the backyard when space allows, uh, there's indoor systems that are really great too. I have a, a friend that did like a three bucket stack system where the worms were in the, the bottom, the new food waste went in the top. And when they ran out of food, they would kind of dig up and kind of make it a closed loop system. So there are ways to kind of get those organic materials broken down depending on, um, the space you might have, um, yeah, I you know I, the other kind of school of thought too is when I was a lot younger, I, I was always told you know dig a hole six or seven feet underground, bury a couple dead fish there, and that's where we'll plant our cannabis plants the following spring right. in the fall. Uh, and it's been cool to kind of enter more of the sciency realm of this kind of stuff and seeing like oh well yeah the fish breaks down into a, a ammonium or some form of NH four or three, um, and the emulsions and, you know, they, they provide nutrition from those breakdown products. Um, so I just, just one thing that I love about the cannabis science industry is, or just cannabis science in general is kind of seeing, um, you know, old school of thought growers with these really wise practices that we are just now starting to understand, uh, and can be measured scientifically with, with, you know, how does a fish break down in the soil and what types of plant inputs does it turn into? Yeah, all all of this old school um, cultivation magic, you know, eventually science catches up with it and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, the old hippies were right in what they were doing. Absolutely. It's like, yeah, yeah, uh, everything old is new again. So right on. Well, uh, let's let's wrap up this first set here. Um, We're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is microbiologist Michael DeLegge. Revenue is tight for cannabis businesses right now. There is no question about it. And when revenue tightens, businesses need to spend smarter on advertising. Instead of throwing obscene money at hanging your company's logo from the rafters at your next convention, 
perhaps consider placing commercials on Shaping Fire. And if you are a very small business, there is simply no better bang for your buck than commercials on Shaping Fire, especially if your products are for regeneratively-minded cultivators. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from the others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into relationship with their customers is essential. That is what we offer. We will explain your service or product, what sets it apart as desirable, and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot, you can do that too. With a commercial on Shaping Fire, you'll reach your customers in the privacy of their headphones right now, and will continue to reach new listeners as they explore the Shaping Fire back catalog of episodes again and again for years. A spot on Shaping Fire costs less than a postcard per person, and the Shaping Fire audience is full of smart cannabis enthusiasts, cultivators, and entrepreneurs who are always curious to learn. And right now in the new year, we are booking the few open spots we have for the rest of 2024. I'd love for you to be one of our new advertisers. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and Instagram advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Gas Lamp Seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gas Lamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gas Lamp Seeds. Gaslamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gaslamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. 
With over 60 breeders and over a thousand strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gas Lamp Seeds has something for everyone with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos. And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of gas lamp provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit gaslampseeds.com today. That's gaslamp seeds. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is microbiologist Michael DeLeggi. So during the first set, we talked all about um, biostimulants and where to find them in nature, as well as um, the idea of plant growth regulators. And we kept on coming back to this idea that um, what we want to do to help um, our cannabis plants the most is to help the rhizosphere, to make sure that the nutrition and variety of microbes are incredibly varied um, are are indigenous so that they survive in our local natural environment and that we can bioprospect them all over our own property and near us uh, by just going to other plants that we already have locally and um, not only does that save us money but we know that these plants that are already surviving locally are already covered in um, indigenous microorganisms so saves us money and is exactly the tool for the job to help you have your best grow ever. So here in set two, we're going to talk about the care and tending of the microbe community that's in your rhizosphere, right? So these are these are um, all of the residents of the rhizosphere, the root zone, um, that make up the, 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 the soil food web that is within the soil. As we all know, the, the soil food web also is above the soil and it also takes place in water but specifically we're talking about this this neighborhood of the roots of the cannabis plant so when i was listening to michael delegi on um our friend leighton morrison's show um um uh, he and I, I guess I'm talking to the audience, Michael, and to you, kind of third person. You, you, you were talking on Layton's show um, about your um, uh, uh, love of uh, bi- biochar, which we're big fans of on the show as well. And and um, and and I really liked how you kind of anthropomorphized uh, the microbes because you were talking about how um, 
how biochar has got all these like you know ridges and places to live and and they've got these um these these environments that the the microbes can set up housing and 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 where their nutrition grows and and how it just kind of makes like for this perfect neighborhood and and i always like to think about my pots that way too or or you know the soil that that i want to make a good neighborhood for my plants to grow in as well so 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 you you and i clearly (laughs) enjoy anthropomorphizing microbes which which i can support um let's go ahead and start just kind of generally with this idea of of creating neighborhoods that have got the kinds of attributes in the soil that um that these neighborhoods can build on what is the nature of soil structure that makes good rhizosphere I think a good balance of um, sand, silt, and clay, obviously, is, is a great way to, you know, that definition of soil makes a good structure for the microbes to colonize. But I think a really important thing that is often overlooked uh, would be things that uh, we call MAX, M-A-C, uh, microbially forms of accessible carbon or microbe accessible carbon. Um, your plants are, you know, constantly depositing these things into the soil through root exudates. Uh, as well as you know any organic matter um, and different types of breakdown processes in soil or other systems um, can provide these forms of max uh, carbon sources, food sources for the microbes to be in there. Um, you know, biochar being carbon-based is a really great form of this. Other things like fullerenes and um, um, different like you know cellulose breakdown products are another great way to kind of feed microbes in the soil. So, um, so is the primary, uh, is the primary, I'll say the first, not the only, but is the primary attribute of creating a good neighborhood, making sure that there's lots of these max rounds. So there's always high quality carbon for them to eat is yeah, that like I at think, the top uh, of the list. I would, I would put that at the top of the list just because, uh, if you apply something like a biological to a, a near sterile system, I'll, I'll never call a hydroponic system sterile, um, <laughs> just because there's microbes everywhere, microbial ubiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have, you know, the, the notion of, uh, a lot of that stuff can be wasted if there's not food sources to, to feed the microbes. You know, you hear about with your gut and gut health, prebiotics with probiotics, um, that's, you know, feeding also the things that might be resident to your system, whether or not they're applied uh, from a bottle or from uh, indigenous microorganism hunting. Mm-hmm. So, so what are um, sources of these MACs that we can wildcraft and, and how do we, how do we process them into it? I mean, you know the biochar um we, you know we can use it as a soil amendment and some people like to crush it up and and um and you know top dress it into their water so it slowly works their way in but give us give us some more idea of how to think about these max and and where we can bioprospect them into our cultivation absolutely yeah i mean i think um i'm going to do a callback to biostimulants right there's lots of max uh, in different tiers of biostimulant products or or uh, things that you can get or procure naturally with wildcrafting um and essentially you know the uh the plant is also feeding your microbes so as long as your plants are health uh, maintained optimal health and nutrition there is going to be some source of of max in the system from the root exudates too um, but you will, you know, plants also can reuptake root exudates. Uh, so there is a degree of plant microbe competition for these food sources. Um, but going back to that kind of old uh, wisdom cultivation, uh, you know, thinking um, people that I hear a lot of people have really strong opinions about applying molasses uh, as a as a input and during flower. Um, and I've always kind of understood that as we're feeding the soil microbes rather than we're, you know, giving sugar to help 
increase flower synthesis or something like that. Yeah, you know, we've we've talked on this show many times how you know the adding of molasses into the pot. Um, what you're doing is throwing your your um, your pot out of balance. What you want to do is, if you're going to use the molasses, is feed the feed the microbes in your in your aerated compost brewer. Let them eat the molasses there and incubate them. So now you have a whole bunch of them, and then put that compost tea that's not hot anymore into your your rhizosphere is is that the are those the steps that you're referring to yeah yeah i think that that is probably the best practice to do it um for those who you know are unable to kind of have the lead time to brew a cup of compost tea and and feed it sugar and whatnot i think um, just a very diluted form and irrigation solution can also kind of benefit those those microbes that might be in your roots right on i want to push you a little bit on specificity because you said that there are um you know various plants that we can wildcraft where we can get the max from um just for examples to get us started because we, we all know that we can like you know google it or ask gpt or something but from you will you give us three mac rich plants that we might be able to wildcraft just so you know people who just want to jump on it know what where to start you know, I think um, I'm always going to go back to compost and those breakdown processes. Um, I, I would, I, when I say, you know, you ask for specific plants, I don't know that I have any of those off the top of my list, but um, I, I think, you know, carbon and nitrogen sources uh, essentially um, can help increase available max, uh, whether, whether or not they are being added to your system or the nutrients, you know, the compost pile or something like that provided. Um, but in terms of kind of going out and, and foraging up a bunch of plants and making a tea out of that, I, uh, I would have to do some more research. Right on. You know, your, your hesitation kind of like suddenly recontextualized everything for me. Is, is it potentially the answer to the question I asked that um, these Macs are in everything because carbon is a building block? So, so long as I'm starting with a, a local, healthy, thriving plant it's gonna have max in it so just use whatever i have a lot of around me and use a variety of plants that are around me and then if i want to up it we'll then go ahead and do some online research and find out the types of plants that are more rich in max but it, it i'm starting to get the idea since we keep on coming back to compost that the max are everywhere and and so just use whatever you have yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Thank you. Um, and another kind of way to put it, you know, it, or another, I guess, using whatever you have should should be used with caution a little bit. As, as a lot of people know, you know, if you look for uh, broken down, dried out plant material, um, you want to make sure that didn't come from anything diseased. Uh, obviously, you know, you'd want that to be fully broken down in, in a composting system or a, a heat breakdown type of format uh, before you add something that might be, you know, degraded, a, you know, a leaf lost due to a Xanthomonas bacteria in the leaf or something like that, right? We don't want to reintroduce that to our system, but, um, you know, plant health is very important too when you're, when you're kind of wildcrafting. Right on. All that to say. All right. So, so when we're talking about the care and tending of microbes, obviously we want to include a lot of these Macs so that there, there's a, a varied buffet all through the rhizosphere, um, for, for, um, uh, for all the varieties of, of, of residents to eat. So, so let's go, um, so long, as long as you think we've covered that well enough, let's go beyond the nutrition for the microbes eating the carbon. And let's talk about some of the other, um, attributes of soil structure that might also be, um, um, beneficial to, 
to the rhizosphere. And and again, I might be over anthropomorphizing here, but in my notes, I put like shelter, reproduction space, you know, you know, um, uh, non carbon nutrition, like like the idea of shelter may not actually exist in soil in the rhizosphere, but, but it seems like it should exist there because you have got more, more predator residents in the biosphere and more passive residents in the biosphere. And, and, you know, normally life forms need to take shelter when they reproduce. And so, you know, I, I am very willing to be very wrong on this. Right. But, but is it, it, tell us a little bit about how the community interacts and if there are attributes of our soil and amendments that that potentially provide more of this shelter and reproduction space and non-carbon nutrition absolutely yeah i mean i think uh, uh, the best place for plants to overwinter um in terms of seasonal changes would be in the roots and in the in the kind of skeletized plant bodies that are no longer actively growing um that's a great place for microbes to overwinter and be ready to uh, be introduced to your plants when you're planting them in the springtime. And then and I just do want to circle back a little bit on the Mac stuff and say one more thing. Sure. Um, I want to go back to, uh, I want to quote Dr. Elaine Ingham from the soil food web and say, you know, what do microbes love? Uh, sugars, right? And that's why the cakes and cookies that are the root exudates are really kind of, you know, being deposited by the plants in theory to, to colonize or recruit microbes to the, to the root zone. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was going back to that, that big open table analogy with empty seats. Um, uh, another kind of enhancement of this theory is, is like, uh, if that table is being catered and, and there is only, you know, slabs of meat being put on that table, only, only, uh, you know, carnivore type people are going to be sitting down there to consume that stuff. Right. So we also want to provide a lot of diverse inputs of, of max, whether that is, uh, different types of compost tea or sugar sugars like molasses or, you know, just comp, uh, broken down leaves and pine straw and stuff like that. Um, but the important thing is by providing a lot of different forms of microbial accessible carbon, we're feeding, uh, lots of different functional microbes in the soil, right? So if, if there's, um, if that table's being catered with vegetables, meat, and a little bit of both, we're going to have omnivores, vegetarians, vegans, and, and carnivores all sitting at that table. Uh, the same applies in my in my head, at least, to the plant roots, right? So if the, the tomato root is only exuding the, the same compounds tomato plants exude, then only a few types of microbes or functional microbes are going to be able to use those food sources. Um, so the grower can kind of apply different forms of max, molasses, compost, stuff like that, or even companion planting um, to provide a lot of different food sources because uh, the general thinking in microbiome science is uh, health is very closely associated with high diversity in a microbiome. All right. So with my next question, I'm, I'm going to set up a, a little um, a little example first about EM1. And, you know, uh, a lot of folks like to use EM1. And um, the idea is like, okay, you can buy EM1, which is a, a blend of microbes, and you can add it to your plants, and your plants will love it. And if you want to expand the bottle so your, your, your bottle lasts longer, there's uh, usually instructions on the back of how you can do a, um, a, a simple aerated tea so that you can expand what's in your bottle but but eventually if you just keep on brewing it and brewing it 
um, the the microbes that are differently com- aggressive and competitive, the balance that is in the actual EM1 balance that they recommend, it'll eventually get out of balance. And so you have to go and you know get a new bottle of EM1 and, and start over with the, the actual balanced product. Um, so, so using that as the example, um, if we are grabbing... Uh, lots of different plants that are local to our area that are thriving and we are um, either degrading them or extracting them into some sort of extract or aerated compost tea. Is there any um, awareness we should have about the balance of those microbes and nutrition that we're actually putting into the pot? If, 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 if we do want to have our um, rhizosphere life to be in balance, and we influence that balance by what we're adding from our compost pile as a tea, do we need to be worried about throwing off the balance of the residents of the, of the rhizosphere because we are feeding out of balanced uh, teas? Uh, yeah, actually, that is that is a major concern, and um, it's cool that that a product like that has those types of instructions for kind of increase, you know, bang for your buck. Um, but yes, I think uh, my best advice, and this is maybe my opinion, but based on some science, um, would be when you're making those types of products, try to use them up. Um, you know, do do your research and say you you've found a lot of sources to say 48 hours is the ideal incubation or aeration time for a compost tea. Try to use that up uh, pretty pretty quickly uh, after it's ready to go. Um, and I think that is based on the thinking that um, all types of microbes, whether there's one thing in a bottle or a thousand things from a sample of compost, have different uh, growth and metabolism rates. So um, when things are grown together, uh, the term is like co-cultured, um, the faster growers are always going to be able to have that ad- advantage towards the other members of that you know biome um, because they are just uh, genetically advantaged to eat faster and divide faster and break down faster, right? So you can see things like um, if you let a compost tea sit for two weeks, uh, maybe if it's aerated um, as opposed to one week, I bet that that microbiome completely shifts just yeah. based on the ability for those faster growers to become dominant. And I think, you know, the diversity was probably the highest within the first 72 hours of brewing a compost tea. And that starts to probably taper off just based on the way microbial micro ecology kind of works in that system. Um, there's only so much food around, right? And uh, if the fastest eaters are, you know, kind of throwing their elbows at the other ones and, and eating it faster, they're going to become dominant. And maybe those aren't the plant growth promoting microbes that you're in search for. Maybe they're just really good at eating those max. Mm-hmm. I like that idea that that as you're as you're brewing it for 36 to 48 hours and you're and you're pulling it out of the bucket right then you have got so many aerated microbes and they've all just been getting all the aeration and nutrition that they could possibly want which just means like everybody is fed and thriving and at the starting line and that's when we want to give it to our plants but the longer we get away from that starting line and let that compost tea sit for one day two day they're all they're all already racing and competing and beating each other up and eating each other and so by day you know three or four you you're fully at survival of the fittest at that point and you're not providing a nice even balanced array of nutrition and microbiology you're actually providing them something imbalanced that's going to have some sort of effect on your um on your soil environment does that sound about right 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the way to say that is in microbiome sciences, we use a term called alpha diversity. Um, so if I have a basket of fruit and there's 10 pieces of fruit in there and nine of them are apples and one of them's an orange, I have really low alpha diversity. But if I have 10 pieces of fruit in a basket and one's an apple, one's a grape, one's a banana, blueberry, everything is a different thing. Um, the parts of a whole are all different. That is really high alpha diversity. So the longer something like a compost tea might sit, um, it's likely that you be lowering your alpha diversity where those fast growers or good eaters are going to become dominant. Um, right yeah. on. That's, that is super interesting. And because I want to look this up after the show, are you saying alpha, A-L-P-H-A? That is correct, yes. All right, cool. That's a very interesting idea that is new to and me. On compost teas as well, um, I, I collaborated on something when I was in school uh, where a colleague was making vermicompost tea from worm castings and finished compost. Um, and this person was able to uh, grow it up. I think they did a 48-hour aeration. Um, and then they boiled half of it, and then they applied the other half untreated. And they actually found that, I think it was a basil host or a tomato host, um, those plants benefited more from the boiled compost tea. Um, so this is not me suggesting that everybody should be boiling their compost tea, but maybe on their aeration time, they were able to you know, increase the populations of things that might not directly benefit plants and actually compete for plants for those beneficial parts that get released when we make a compost tea. Um, so it was kind of interesting to think about you know, boiling or trying to get the microbes out of a compost tea, the ones that can't survive boiling, uh, actually made the plants do better, um, presumably from a reduced uh, amount of microbe competition for the same things the plant wants that kind of get released from the aeration process in compost tea. Wow, man. Boiling compost. You just kind of blew my mind there. Um, I'm going to have to think a lot about that. But, but what I think about it immediately is that if, if, if we've talked constantly throughout this episode so far about um, the biodiversity of the teas and you know, of the carbons and of the plant sources that we continually pour into our plants, that if I'm going to make aerated compost teas and I'm also going to do cold extracted uh, teas, like I don't see any reason why uh, having a big pot of boiled plants that I then let cool and then apply to the plants because I'm going to get a whole di a whole different um, cast of characters in that, and it, all I'm doing is increasing my diversity by using all three different types of teas. I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. You know, the 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 non boiled compost tea in the study I'm referring to is is kind of a balance of both probiotic or just bacterial members and prebiotics. Whereas likely after it was boiled, you know, it wasn't measured chemically, but that was probably just more, uh, I'm going to use the term prebiotic, but just uh, kind of the, the metabolites that are released from the compost tea brewing process, um, ready for the, the plant to slurp right up rather than kind of have to share with the microbes. Right on. All right. So um, before we move on to our next topic, I want to hit something one more time because, um, you know, um, I, I've heard you kind of allude to the fact that one of the good things that biochar does in the soil structure is to, you know, not only provide, um, you know, the carbon for food, but also um, it's like a unique housing structure, if you will, because it's got all these nooks and crevices. Um, is, is there anything, and the answer may be no, but I'm going to try to squeeze you on this anyway. Is, is there anything else that we should consider adding as an amendment to our soil that is less about nutrition and having it break down to provide, you know, foods, which is what most of the stuff we do um, is for, but instead is something that we are going to amend the soil because it actually provides um, 
a physical mechanism that is good for the microbe life? Yeah, uh, I, for that, I think, you know, the, the biochars are a really good approach to that. And I think I'll always recommend if people aren't already doing this to get a starting soil test before you start applying your inoculants or, or inputs to that as well. Um, but I think in terms of kind of like housing the microbes or giving them like a, a nice place to live, um, you know, again, I'm biased towards the soil systems as opposed to like a hydroponic system. But when we think about no-till, um, not only is that really kind of maintaining uh, soil, you know, carbon that's stored from those plants, um, but that's also keeping those those houses for the microbes dormant in the plant roots ready to be, uh, you know, introduced to the fresh roots that would be kind of germinating in the same soils. So like my, me personally, um, I have one of my experimental, you know, <laughs> garden beds in my backyard that I, I've never tilled it for and I'll plant seeds or directly transplant things there. And it seems to be, um, you know, speculative that those plants get a little bit of a boost uh, because the, you know, I, I do apply heavy compost and things like that. There's a lot of factors we're not considering, but I think a big thing is, you know, those microbes have overwintering structures and they were evolved with the plant to survive through these, these, uh, you know, cold temperatures and hot temperatures. Um, so yeah, I think uh, people should maybe experiment more with no-till or, you know, companion planting and things along those lines. Yeah, that certainly makes sense uh, regarding our experience with no-till. Every year, the soil just gets more mature and it lasts better through the winter. And the, 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 the following year's plants are thriving. It's always hardest that first year when people are using like, you know, immature bagged soil without a lot of mycelium. And, you know, they get kind of mediocre plants. Um, and, then, and then the longer they go no-till, the more, you know, beefy the plants get. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, a, a bettering, you know, I think there's probably a limit to it, year three, year four, something like that. Everybody's system's different, but yeah, the more the more organic material and different types of plant materials and, you know, their root exudates, stuff like that, you can get in that system, you're adding that diversity, which is, you know, really correlated with plant and microbe health. Rotating and amending, you know, no-till soil every, you know, let's say four years, um, you know, it, that is such a massive improvement than the idea of, you know, kind of old school where every year you start with new, fresh, clean soil that doesn't have any pathogens in it. And while we, yeah, we want to avoid the pathogens, um, but the, the best way to actually keep pathogens at bay is to have a vigorous soil that's already aged. And I always, I always feel bad for people who are very much set on the new season, new soil tip because it, it just it just makes things hard every year instead of year three and four being like easy. Yeah. To me, the, the, that kind of feels like a scorched earth type of approach. <laughs> um, and, and I like that you mentioned, you know, the diversity, uh, in what you just said, um, you know, we've seen, uh, things like fusarium, uh, species highly present, you know, 10 to the sixth, 10 to the eighth cells per gram of soil, um, in a, in a plant rhizosphere sample. Um, but it's, you know, very far along into flower maturation and there's no signs or symptoms of the fusarium attacking the plant. Um, so it's like this, the fusarium is taking one seat at the seat or the table with a hundred seats and the other 99 seats are plant benefiting things or soil benefiting things. So, you know, pathogens can be present without becoming virulent and it all comes back to soil microbial diversity. You know, out competing fusarium is the only potential solution that I see that there is other than just dumping the soil. Um, you know, we, we've talked about fusarium. I've had fusarium specialists on this, on the, on the, um, program. And, and usually their answer is like, throw the soil away. And I get that. Um, but 
Um, but it's interesting to realize that as a preventative, since fusarium is everywhere, it's not like it's not mm-hmm. going to be in your soil. Um, just make sure you keep on, you know, adding microbes, incubating like microbes, adding indigenous microbes, and fusarium will never get a good foothold. Yeah, I mean, you know, never is a strong word, but I yeah, think fair enough, fair it, enough. <laughs> <laughs> differently from, you know, adding all the microbes and really intentionally applying, you know, diverse forms of microbes, whether they're from, you know, your wild crafting or input somebody could buy. I think the other thing is, you know, soil health practices really is where a lot of this soil microbial diversity preservation can start. Um, so those things like the prebiotics and the organic inputs and companion planting, uh, crop rotation, no-till, uh, soil health, I think maybe even I would put higher on the list than uh, microbial accessible carbon from the, the previous question, but they're, they're related, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So the last topic I want to hit uh, during here during the set two here is, um, you know, so so far this, uh, this set, we've been talking about the things that we can do to make the living environment for the microbe life and in the rhizosphere as diverse and beneficial as possible and, and why that's kind of everything, right? It, it, we keep on coming back to the same answer and it's because the answer is, is kind of the only thing that we need to be doing as regenerative farmers is, is adding, um, adding diversity into the soil and then, and let nature do the rest. So, so that's great. Um, I also am very attracted to the idea that the plant is also um, trying to help itself as well by by putting out you know exudates that that encourage particular microbes or or um, or different residents in the rhizosphere where they're kind of curating uh, who they are attracting to them, and I've heard you talk before about um, recruitment that that cannabis plants will recruit bacteria that that they find beneficial and and I. I'm unfamiliar with this idea, but I, it, but just the idea of it is fascinating. So so I, I don't know the right question to ask you on it. So I'm just going to kind of hand you the mic and say, will you tell us about how cannabis plants recruit beneficial bacteria itself, kind of like intentionally? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I think you know there's a lot of uh, literature from the past five or six years that show photosensitive, photoperiod sensitive plants or plants that you know have major changes in development. Um, also change their root exudate profiles. So I think it was first, you know, learned about in a, a Rhabdopsis wild, wild mustard model, um, a, a plant that has a rosette stage and then it bolts and then it makes flowers and those flowers make seeds. Um, at each one of those stages, uh, it was seen that the the root exudate profiles change. Um, you know, st- the early growth and development, there was just a ton of sugar, and later in the uh, the flowering and maturation, there was a lot of, you know, organic acids and things that are, uh, can be harsh to certain microbes, whereas sugar is like a really broad food source. So the kind of thinking from the authors of that paper were, um, and I'll get to cannabis too, I promise, <laughs> were about, about, um, you know, the developmental needs of the plant are changing, you know, more nitrogen in the beginning, more phosphorus and potassium later. And, you know, those micronutrients trickled throughout. Um, and we know that the microbes help plants uptake these things. So, you know, let's wonder if the plant is actually, I'm going to use the term uh, intentionally uh, signaling for different things as it goes on through growth and development. So, I mean, being a cannabis enthusiast, seeing that study, I was like, wow, you know, what's the most popular photosensitive, photoperiod sensitive plant that we use, you know, hemp and cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So it was, I'm not sure if root exit work has been done, um, but we've done some work on the um, the 
vegetative versus the transition. So you know, maybe a couple of weeks after flower onset, after the solstice and the days get short in an outdoor system, um, as well as the harvest, uh, you know, functional microbiome of cannabis. And we see that um, regardless of the, you know, specific species of cannabis uh, or strain, uh, whether it's hemp or cannabis, 0.3% THC producers or higher, um, the same functions or at least the same bacterial genera are occurring in, in a many different uh, types of soil environments. Um, we're using like the USDA climatic zones for that. But basically, um, cannabis being as, as nutritionally uh, needy <laughs> compared to some <laughs> other plants, um, you know, we, we see uh, really strong associations with the bacteria um, based on development. So when we use the term like recruit, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the cannabis plant is sending these signals into the rhizosphere to likely get some type of rhizospheric function by the bacterial or fungal or just anybody in the soil microbiome. Um, and these needs are pretty standard from, you know, the genus or the, the, the cannabis sativa plants, uh, whether they are classified as hemp or marijuana, uh, you know, depending on the, the amount of metabolite it produces, right? Um, all that to say is plants really want microbes. Um, and if we can kind of provide microbes uh, that the plant can't search for in indoor systems um, or <clears throat> in really, you know, low alpha diversity, 10 year monocultured cornfield soils where there's lots, there's like five different types of microbes, I'm exaggerating, um, then we can kind of benefit the plant uh, in a way that it would in its natural environment in the wild type relatives and the progenitors might have, you know, kind of evolved to do. So it sounds like, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, the main point is that over the life cycle of the plant, the plant, uh, the, the, the dominant bacteria in the rhizosphere changes. And we know the mechanism, or, or at least we're pretty sure that the mechanism of why it changes is because the plant wants different types of bacteria. And so it's putting, the plant is putting out different types of exudates to encourage different types of bacteria. And so... Um, the best thing that we can do is to, um, you know, A, let the plant do its job, and then B, do our part by um, offering um, varieties of other um, nutritions and, and probiotic bacteria and such that, that the plant can't produce and it needs to get its environment so that between the partnership between us and the plant, the roots have just got everything it could possibly desire to express itself most fully. Yes, that is a perfect distillation. Thank you. And I think, um, you know, most importantly, the, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but soil health, right? Yeah, <laughs> if the yeah, yeah. soil health is, is maintained, then we are going to assume, and you know, we've proven, like the science has proven, there's lots of alpha diversity, microbial diversity in a very healthy soil. Um, so whether or not the microbe that's present during the vegetative growth period uh, of your cannabis plant's life cycle is recruited by the plant um, during that time, if you maintain that soil health, it's likely there will still be those microbes in low enough cell numbers. And then when the plant changes its root exudation compounds, presumably to attract microbes to uh, help it meet its nutritional needs based on development, um, then, you know, soil health maintains microbial diversity. Those bugs are hanging around when your plant is flowering and in, in need of those types of uh, functions. 
Hell yeah, that's actually really exciting. <laughs> I like that summary a lot. It's like uh, it, it's it's very rare in uh, discussing uh, soil health and and you know soil maximalism, if you will, to actually have uh, that clear of a recipe for what we need to do this season. Thank God. <laughs> so yeah, right. <laughs> right on. Well, good. Well, well, thank you for that, Michael. Let's go ahead and take our second uh, commercial uh, and be right back. Uh, you're listening to Shaving Fire, and my guest today is microbiologist Michael Delegi. And remember, you know, without these advertisers, Shaving Fire wouldn't happen. So please support them and let them know that you heard of them on Shaving Fire. You've heard me talk about the award-winning cannabis seeds that come from the analytical breeding program of Seth and Eric Crawford, who founded Oregon CBD Seeds. In fact, Seth was a guest on Shaping Fire in 2020 to talk about triploid genetics. Seth and Eric are now releasing high-THC seeds for home growers and farms as Grow the Revolution Seeds at gtrseeds.com. Their high THC seeds are extraordinary in that they will start to flower at 16 and a half hours of daylight instead of the typical 14 and a half hours of daylight. That means in most regions, your plants will start to flower outdoors in the middle of July instead of the middle of August, which means these photoperiod plants finish in September and not October, totally upending the photoperiod seed market. Seth and Eric took their prized early flowering CBG line and bred it to some of the most desired verified genetics out there, including Sour Diesel, Triangle Kush, Wedding Cake, Chem Dog, Skittles, and others. These crosses all express powerful photoperiod terpene profiles and THC, giving you a great high. GTR Seeds has a new THCV line with plants like Double Durbin and Gigantor that boast one-to-one THC to THCV, and people want that THCV. GTR Seeds are very consistent, true-growing, inbred F1s from stabilized inbred parent lines. These seeds are nearly homogenous, and the plants should all grow the same. There is only one phenotype in every pack available as diploids and triploids. Seth and Eric's company is still family-owned, patient and employee-centric, and partially powered by their two acres of solar panels. Everyone can purchase these seeds and the entire catalog of Oregon CBD seeds at gtrseeds.com. Go to gtrseeds.com today and choose something revolutionary for your next indoor or outdoor run. Fish Poop Brand Fertilizer is an all-natural fish poop concentrate with nothing added. Real fish poop is extraordinarily complex. Not only are you adding the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium your plants need to build mass, transport nutrients, and enhance flavor, but fish waste is also packed with biological activity and micronutrients. When you add fish poop to your irrigation water, you are adding life force, probiotics, and active microbes. These microorganisms include a wealth of various bacteria and protozoa, which further enhance nutrient availability for the plants. Because plants are limited by the absence of any essential micronutrient, these trace nutrients are the difference between having a decent garden and having a garden that makes you feel really proud of your efforts. Fish poop is a naturally complete solution that fills in the cracks in your fertilizer program to ensure you offer your garden a broad base of nutrients. Not all fish poop is created equally. Most products with added fish waste don't reveal their sources or lab results. 
Fish poop brand fish poop, however, generates their own fish waste as a byproduct of their organic aquaponics cannabis farm where they raise ornamental koi and tilapia. You are even invited to tour their farm in person or on their YouTube channel to look for yourself. This sort of transparency is wildly rare in the fertilizer market. The folks behind Fish Poop are also lifelong medical cannabis producers who have deep connections in the community, donate more product than they sell, and support cannabis prisoner, veteran, and patient collectives and charities. To get your bottle of pure Fish Poop, go to fishpoop.com. And to see their entire line of cannabis products, go to ounceofhope.com. That's Fish Poop brand Fish Poop. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynomyco on dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is microbiologist Michael DeLeggi. So here we are at the big finish. You know, during the first set, we talked all about biostimulants and plant growth regulators and what we wanted to do as regenerative cultivators to make sure that we have the healthiest, most biodiverse soil so the plant can do its job of growing in a healthy way that resists pests and gives us awesome yields and terpenes. During the second set, we talked a bit more about the care and tending of microbe life specifically and 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 not only how we can add uh, microbes and biodiversity like we were talking in the first set, but also how we can help them f- thrive and keep them well fed with uh, carbon. 
And here on the third set, um, we're just going to hit on um, two more kind of miscellaneous uh, biodiversity topics um, that didn't fit in the other two sections, but I think are really important and things that we have talked about uh, prior on the conver- on the on the program. So the first of the two is uh, choosing companion plants to encourage biodiversity. So Michael, we've talked quite a bit today about uh, plant exudates and how plants push out the exudates from the root structure um, uh, and, 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 and attract different um, um, microbial life and life forms in the rhizosphere um, that, that it wants to use as, as uh, different you know, flavors of tools. And, and, and I understand that like the plants that are planted near our cannabis plants can influence the rhizosphere of our cannabis plant because it is also calling forth different types of nutrition and mycelium um, to its uh, root systems as well. And um, I understand, um, you know, partly what you study is, is um, how these systems may interact and, and how to choose companion plants that will be a good neighbor for whatever the target plant that that we're looking to grow in in our case we're talking about cannabis and so will you kind of um talk us through how to think about choosing our companion plants and in in order to encourage the the most biodiversity in our soil yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason that this isn't more, you know, widespread or adapted or adopted rather is is because of the um the scalability of this, but I, I would love to see it, you know, on hundreds of acres. I think um two really cool examples that are new to me for kind of companion planting for cannabis would be um I had some friends do the three sisters but replace the corn with the um the cannabis plant as opposed to corn. Um, and for those who don't know, the three sisters is corn, beans, and squash. The corn serves as a trellis for the beans to grow up. Um, the beans have a nitrogen-fixing symbiotic bacterium called rhizobium that live in their roots, and that nitrogen can get leached out of their roots and be available for both the corn and the squash. And then the squash, with their large leaves at the base of the plant, they provide shade, so soil stays kind of cooler temperatures and doesn't get baked from the sun. Um, so in this case, uh, they replaced the corn with the, the hemp plants and the cannabis plants to serve as that trellis for the, the beans to climb up. Um, and both, you know, the squash and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the hemp was able to benefit from the beans being present due to that rhizobium bacterium being there. Um, and also, you know, certain soil temperatures, if they get too hot, that can actually be detrimental to microbial um, populations. So having that cooling effect from the squash leaves uh, depending on your growing environment, Colorado, we have 320 days of direct sunshine <laughs> that can help cool it down um, to keep those soil temperatures uh, happy for lots of different things to to keep growing rather than just, uh, you know, the ones that are tolerant to warm soil. Before you move past, Another, be, hold on, before you move past yes. the three sisters, I have got to ask, are you serious? We want to have beans climbing up our cannabis plants? Like, that sounds awful. Like, does that work? Do they, I mean, I imagine that the bean plants get all into the flowers and then, and how does that work? I think it might require a little bit more um, uh, maintenance from the cultivator than, than most people can do in a production system. Um, but yeah, so they would kind of climb up and, and on the fan leaves and things along those lines. Um, 
do, do the bush bean, beans are also do the bean very stay closer <laughs> to the stalk because like normally the flowers are are you know kind of far away from the stalk so so are the are the beans perhaps going to just like grow up the center of the plant and not grow out to the flowers or will the will the beans eventually grow out the branch to the flowers the ones i the ones i saw in the system were were more so like the the tips of the bean vines or you know yeah were kind of hanging out in the empty space between fan leaves in the middle parts of the plant they didn't might quite make it up to that top cola um and you know this is a one one example right so um, another approach to this, though, because I do hear what you're saying with, you know, beans could effectively act like a, a bindweed um, and pull yeah, plants down yeah, like yeah. that. So I think um, a bush bean or a different type of legume like a cowpea might be a better type of nitrogen fixer to get that, you know, diverse root exudate profile, diverse microbiome from the root exudates um, and the nitrogen component too from the legume plants. And uh, so those different types, those bush beans, and, and the reason why those are better is because you would plant those at the foot of the cannabis plant. And so their rhizospheres could talk to each other, but the plant is not a climbing bean. And so you'll just have like bean shrubbery at the bottom of your cannabis plant, which is fine. Um, it just won't climb the plant. Is that where, where that goes? Yes, absolutely. And right, so like that right. rhizosphere becomes representative of at least, you know, two to three different types of plant species with your, with your vining squash, you know, your fruits should be okay. Cause they'll be far away from the rest of the beans that are kind of bushing at the base. Um, but if you have all those roots kind of in the same root ball, as long as there's adequate nutrition and organic material, um, that will be like a very healthy, diverse microbiome, uh, as a factor of just having three different hosts. Yeah, I like that a lot. And um, we've talked on the show before, too, that people who uh, who grow in berms that are heavy built up with uh, compost and, you know, grass clippings and, and other agricultural clippings, um, it's very popular to grow potatoes in that, too. So, you know, you've got your potatoes and your beans and your squash kind of trailing off down the down the line of plants. Um, I've, I've always loved the idea of, of growing food crops with the cannabis so that you can feed yourself and, and as well as you know, smoke and save your soul, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So at, now that I've pushed you on that, <laughs> what other, what other strategies or plants do you have in mind for um, uh, creating a, a, a diverse uh, rhizosphere? Well, this was something that was kind of um, new to me that I read about. I didn't get to see this one in, in, in action, but it was a, a farm that had been co-planting um, um, a plant with a mushroom. So they were kind of using myceliated uh, beds of a wine cap mushroom mm. to get um, both harvest of wine cap fungi, edible mushrooms at the base of the soil. And the, uh, the hemp was able to grow um, and flower at the top. So it was kind of getting um, both, you know, that fungal microbiome benefit uh, as well as the, the plant roots there too. So not directly, you know, plant to plant signaling, like we're seeing with like the three sisters we just discussed. Um, but something along the lines of, you know, trying to have uh, more bang for your buck in terms of square footage for harvesting and things like that. And the um, wine cap as- mushroom is uh, one of my favorite eating mushrooms. They're absolutely delicious. I, I tried to do that in my indoor and it didn't work out because the, the humidity from mushrooms seems to be a little higher um, than we want it to be in an indoor setting. It seems to work well outdoors. Um, so long as you've got good plant coverage, because uh, normally we want our plants in direct sunlight, right? But right. the mushrooms don't want to be in the direct sunlight. So you've got to make sure that you're growing plants that are going to be big enough to um, create that shadow underneath that allows the, the wine caps to exist. 
Yeah, maintain that humid microclimate underneath the plant canopy that is super ideal for mushrooms. Oh, and the squash will help with that too that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Those those big leaves. Yeah. All right. um, Do you have any more on that before, uh, before I move on? Uh, I think just companion planting is really, really excellent. And I think there is a, um, you know, go back to the literature and and look out, you know, if you have deer eating your, your hemp (laughs) marigolds can be deterrents for deer, right? I think there's a different, different plant for a different need. Um, And just always going back to the more diverse roots and hosts in the, in the soil would, you know, increase your soil health and microbial diversity there. So, so I actually was planning on doing um, big pots of marigolds uh, next to the plants for the first time this year, um, because we do have a lot of deer pressure and luckily I got some, um, some deer fencing this year. So hopefully that'll help too. But um, is it, is it as effective that if the, um, the marigolds are, are, not in the pot with the candles or in the ground next to it, but like are beside it that the smell of the marigolds is enough to keep the deer off or will the deer just come over and browse the weed and, and just ignore the marigold? I'll be fully honest with you. Uh, when I, when I tried to use marigolds as a, a deterrent crop in, in Maryland, I, I watched a deer chew one down before. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's kind of like, um, your mileage I think, may vary. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, uh, kind of like different, different strains of cannabis might have different terpenoid or cannabinoid profiles, different species of marigolds. You know, they have the multicolored ones have different, uh, type of phytochemical profiles or, you know, those volatile organic compounds that smell icky to deer. Um, um, so I, I don't know a variety off the top of my head, but I imagine that, um, you know, it's very species specific. Right on. Well, thank you. Uh, I pre- I appreciate your, uh, your honesty in that. And, you know, if we're really going to go for it, um, you know, these bioregions have got different deer, right? So different deer true. could be, yeah. um, accustomed to browsing different types of plants. Whereas, whereas Mar- Maryland deer don't like, uh, marigolds, but, or, or no, do like, <laughs> or mar- they, did, they yeah. do like marigolds <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, my West coast deer, um, are more, um, snooty and they don't want marigolds, you know? Right. <laughs> or something like that. So, all right. Um, but before we leave the companion planning topic, I just wanted to ask, are there any um, plants that are um, obviously um, uh, a poor neighbors? Um, the, the, the name for it is, is escaping me at the moment, but, but there's, there are often plants that you don't want to plant near other plants because they, 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 will, they might poison each other or, 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 or be toxic to the other person's or the other plant's rhizosphere. Are you aware of any of those? Yeah, there is one that's jumping off the top of my head, although I know there's, uh, you know, a lot of examples. Um, uh, black walnut uh, trees, for example, you know, not specifically related or cultivated for a, a regular harvest like we're talking about with cannabis or vegetables. Um, but those those guys uh, have a, a root exit um, that is under the nature of allelopathy. Uh, so they are actually able to shoot a compound into the soil that makes it pretty inhospitable for anything but its spring to grow. Um, And to counter that, there's also plants, I think certain trees as well, that, you know, don't want its own offspring to, to compete with the, you know, the mom plant uh, for the resources there. So they'll, they'll send signals into the soil that make it inhospitable for the plants of the same species to grow, um, to try to, uh, you know, preserve its own nutrients that might be in the soil. Right on. That's, that's, that's good to say. And, and I'm going to throw in my two, even though some people like these, um, you know, I always make sure that any any plants that I consider for a companion plant um, does not give off floating seeds like dandelions. Mm. I personally really love 
uh, pink dandelions, and I and I and I encourage them in my yard actually because they look really trippy. Um, and so, but but before they go to seed, um, you know, I've got a different seed crop at a different property, but but like I have to make sure you know I grab those because I don't want all those like little fuzzy puffballs in my resinous flowers, right? That right. is definitely a party fowl. And so any plant that gives off, um, you know, uh, uh, f- uh, fluffy seeds that are going to be wind uh, distributed, you want to be careful of those. And then even though a lot of people like uh, red clover, I personally caution people from the red clover because the red flower <clears throat> shoots up. And if you don't grow monster plants, if you're growing plants that are only, you know, three feet and not 10 feet, <clears throat> Uh, three feet, the clover could totally grow up into and start interacting with your resin, and, and we don't want that either. So the last question here is is one that uh, I talk about sometimes on um, on Shaping Fire, but but mostly it, the the discussion has has happened on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel, where um, I posted a, a video with a microbiologist that had was a specialist in in plant microbe interaction, talking about how um, the twenty four hour light strategy is is bad for cannabis and and I fully believe this to be the case because um, you know uh, f- uh, photosynthetic plants have a have uh, evolved processes that happen during the dark cycle so so if the plant is naturally growing outdoors it gets a day cycle gets a night cycle during the night cycle the photosynthesizing um, stops and other processes happen. And that's how you keep a strong, rambunctious plant. But we know from experiments, indoor plants, when you're supplementing with light, that if you grow the plant at 24 hours, um, it's, it's like giving the plant cocaine or something, like where the plants just go, 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 and constantly photosynthesize, constantly process these sugars, go, rah, rah. And, and, like, and so it will, it will make your... Your, your, your seed germinate faster. It will make the young plant move faster. It will bring it into be, becoming, you know, a ready-to-flower teenage plant faster. And then in the flowering, some people find that they reach maturity of the flower faster to such a degree that they can, you know, knock a week off of flowering sometimes. And they're all like, listen, if, 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 if I do that with every cycle my whole year, I can actually squeeze in another cycle a year, and that's real money. And so because of that, the case for a 24-hour light cycle is made. And I take every opportunity I can to try to teach that the, the dark cycle is necessary for plant health. And um, you, Michael, you know, you're, you're the front line of this debate. As a microbiologist, you know these cycles intimately, and, and you, know what happens in the, you know what happens in the dark. And so, <laughs> so I'm going to kind of throw myself up. Um, hopefully, um, hopefully I'm not wrong in your eyes, but um, I'd like to hear you speak to this idea of the 24-hour light strategy and, um, and how that, that might impact uh, the plant. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, that's got to be one of the most uh, nutritionally expensive types of cultivation practices, I would think, um, that could be done. Uh, I I wonder what types of, um, you know, nutrient usage uh, rates people are going through if they're uh, 
doing this practice with 24 hour light cycles. Um, cause I would imagine that with 24 hours of daylight without any types of resting period, um, that the plant is going to be constantly, uh, requiring extremely high concentrations of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, um, essential processes like the Krebs cycle happen, uh, at nighttime. Um, <clears throat> plants also do these, um, things called like cetacean, where there might be air bubbles in the plant vascular tissue, which can be detrimental. Um, but at nighttime they can push those out. Um, you know, they also close their stomata and, uh, don't evaporate the water out of their bodies as, as quickly. So I think <clears throat> primarily the, um, the benefit to get another cycle might be missed by the amount of nutrients somebody might need from trying to maintain the nutritional needs of the cannabis plant, uh, by blasting them with 24 hours of light, right? If you're going to be, um, you know, basically giving your plants cocaine and keeping them at high energy, high growth, optimal, fast growth rates and developments, there's going to be a lot of energy spent for that. Um, and in order to them, for them to kind of account for that deficit, there needs to be tons and tons of available nutrient inputs there. Um, and I, I don't know that one other cycle might be uh, beneficial enough to, to, to have to add that much more fertigation. In, in my experience, the people who are defending the 24-hour light cycle are, are usually people that are using, you know, two-part bottled salt fertilizers. And so they're kind of like force-feeding the plants uh, nutrition anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty rare to find a, you know, a bottled nutrients grower who isn't overfeeding anyway, because yeah. mm -hmm. if some is good, more is better. Right? right. And so, and so that, that's actually the answer that I get online when discussing this with, with these, these cultivators are at that all. Well, if it just makes the plant more hungry for more nutrition, I'll just pour more in. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's not really how it works. Um, but um, for folks who aren't familiar with it, you mentioned that the Krebs cycle happens in the dark period. Will you, will you explain what that is? Well, the, um, the plant starts to respire, so it stops using the light um, or the photons from the sunlight or your LEDs or any types of lighting you have as um, kind of like the building blocks to metabolism, um, and it starts to respire. Basically, it's getting its energy from off-gassing uh, things that might be in the there as opposed to using the light energy to... Um, kind of make more chloroplast and, and things along those lines. So when I'm, when I'm talking about uh, this with folks who, who are very, very um, into the 24 hour light strategy, um, they come back to me and they're like, they're like, well, you're telling me I can't do this, but I do this all the time and I get plants and I smoke them and I get high and it's great. And, 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 to the best of my scientific knowledge, I say to them, I say, yeah, but you're, you're getting a plant that isn't the best plant you could have grown. Um, if you, if you need fast, cheap styrofoam tasting flour quickly, okay, that, that might be an appropriate strategy to consider. But since most of us are looking for a thriving plant, which, um, you know, also provides high quality terpenes that just like engage us and give us a better high and also creates pest resistance. It seems to me that the 24 hour light cycle will slowly but surely degrade a cannabis plant throughout its entire life cycle. What, what are your thoughts about that? Like is the, is the, is the, is the life of the cannabis plant so short where over, where over that life cycle, it doesn't matter if we, starve the soil i kind of am thinking that 
I, it does matter. You know, uh, the cannabis plant life cycle is a lot longer to, to maturation and harvest than a lot of other different crops that are kind of following the school of thought. And I think that, um, you know, speculatively, there's a lot of uh, things that happen that are beneficial to the plant vascular system during the rest period, um, pushing those air bubbles out, closing those stomata uh, and things along those lines that I would imagine play a role in the, the synthesis of cannabinoids and terpenoids and other secondary metabolites. Um, so I think, yeah, it would be interesting to do a side by side with the same kind of cultivar or, or strain of, of cannabis, uh, you know, in a 24 hour cycle versus uh, an 18.6 followed by a 12, 12. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to mention, uh, you were talking about kind of the indoor growers and having those, you know, two to one salts readily available and probably slightly over applied. Um, it, it would be cool to, to get to a point to where we can kind of start to supplement uh, those conventional salt-based fertilizers with more organic things um, and maybe even get to the point, uh, and this is from Dr. James White, the rhizophagy uh, scientist, um, using those salts that are easily slurped up and, and you know, immediately used in, in building blocks of the plant body um, kind of as like corrective uh, treatments. And you notice a deficiency, you apply a salt, and then you start to kind of balance both your your salt and your organic based of nutrition inputs, not only will that benefit the plant, um, but also same thing with the microbes. Um, there's been studies showing the same exact, you know, strain of, of cannabis growing in living soil versus growing in uh, hydroponics with biologicals and the terpene and cannabinoid profiles are, you know, statistically different from one another. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the terroir or the terroir yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. of the cannabis plant. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of supplementing with uh, with um, salts on its face, I'm prejudiced against. But as a citizen scientist, I want to learn more. You know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> well, well, thank you for for uh, diving into that topic for me. Um, it, 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 it's clearly something that I am passionate about, and I get argued with sometimes. And <laughs> so anytime I, you know, when I get a microbiologist like you willing to talk to me about it, I always bang that drum so thank you <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i guess more on the microbe side i think just like the the soil temperatures do cool or the root temp the root zone rhizosphere temperatures will also cool in the dark so kind of factoring in the microbiome um, that's just allowing more environmental changes to maintain different diversity and things like that um, with the, the darkness period because you know a grow room will cool off 10 degrees when the lights are off and things like that yeah right on yeah and i'm sure there's different cycles that need a cooler temperature to happen yeah, but I'm interested in, in kind of learning more about the effects and uh, the microbiome, you know, with this 24-hour <laughs> versus getting that rest period that plants, you know, were evolved to have. Yeah, so awesome. Well, Michael, we are here at the end. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience and and time and good cheer with us. Um, uh, I've really enjoyed our discussion, and um, you know, it, it, I, I I didn't expect uh, uh, so much, so many times for us to come back to the answer being diverse microbe teas but but really you know the the more i get into regenerative growing and really uh growing in a way that's uh responds to nature the more i realize that um the farmer's only job is to create um rich nutritive nutritive biologically diverse soil and and so you're always going to come back to tea so, th so thank you very much for being here and for, for, you know, sharing what you know. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Shango. Um, it, uh, it was a great conversation and I'm really grateful to be able to kind of just, you know, talk about this stuff with somebody else. Excellent. Yeah, me too. It's, it's nice to find another nerd for this stuff. So thank you. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> right on. So um, if you want to reach out to uh, Michael or know more, what's he's, more of what he's up to, there are two places to do that. Um, you can follow Michael Deleggi, that's D-I-L-E-G-G-E, on LinkedIn, where he posts what he's up to in his latest research. And also, um, uh, the company where he is uh, director of microbiology is Impello Biosciences. And you can find out what they're up to at Impello, I-M-P-E-L-L-O, bio.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.